Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns of your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. Today, we're covering the 2015 Kinderspiel the Arrows winner, Broom Service, a simultaneous choice area movement delivery game packed with exciting, heartbreaking, and thrilling moments. We'll discuss the game's central action selection mechanism, talk about the concept of Yomi, the skill of knowing the mind of your opponent, and much more in this discussion of, spoiler, a game Jake and I really like. Is that true, Jake? You do really like this game. I've always really liked this game, but maybe I've totally changed after revisiting this week. We'll have to find out. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm nervous. You brought this game to me. Jake, how's it how are how's it going? What's your headspace? What are you thinking about? What are you brewing up for this episode? Oh man, I'm really excited to talk about this. Probably one of like this game holds a really special place in my heart. It was a game that I picked up pretty early on into the board game hobby. So uh I, I think I actually kind of twenty fifteen was the year I got super into modern board games mm. in a big way. And I remember I was on a work trip to Washington, DC and I made time on like the one afternoon i had free to and i went to like a a beloved game shop i wish i could recall the name of it now um and i bought broom service there which was like the hot new game the kennerspiel winner for the year and it was getting rave reviews and brought it home played it a bunch like i this is maybe the most well-worn game in my collection a game i still love to bring out okay i guess uh, I'm not going to keep my cards too close to my chest for long. Um, it's interesting. And I think one of the fascinating things about it is like for a Kennerspiel winning game, that's amazing. It's not one that like I see talked about too much. Like I feel like it's at risk of kind of fading away if it hasn't already from sort of the public gaming consciousness. So I think cards on the table, part of this episode, part of the reason I want to do this is to like just spread the word that this game is truly a gem yeah we're not gonna let it fade away broom service is way too good to let this game be forgotten to the to the i don't know brood potions of time i'm gonna read mine <laughs> real quickly so we always start the show with a brief uh our ratings and slogans so i'm gonna do mine real quick and then i want to hear your rating and i'm curious where that's gonna land because I haven't seen a score that's really high from you in quite some time. <laughs> okay, Room Service is nothing short of an incredible game. It invites the player into a cunning world that allows ample room for both cleverness and follies. Its decisions are thoughtful, tense, delightful, and agonizing. Nestled between its turns lives the opportunity to experience the epiphany of truly understanding those around you through play. 9.75 out of 10. Wow, that's really high. I also love this game, as I just said. To me, Broom Service presents as an adorable pick-up-and-deliver game, but what it really is, to me, is a game of poker that is sort of like Mm. hidden beneath that exterior, which makes it a game that is incredibly cutthroat, incredibly interactive, and also a game that is surprisingly accessible. I think anyone that's familiar with poker... Uh, you know, or gambling card games of any kind can sort of immediately sink their teeth into this, uh, which makes it a great one to bring out, uh, even if it has a little bit more complexity than a typical gateway game we might recommend. I think this one can really fill that spot surprisingly well. Uh, so for all those reasons, to me, this game is also going to be uh, in the nines, but I'm just going to give it 
just the nine because I think there is one big criticism I have with it that holds me back from going all the way up to near a 10. Amazing. Save it. We're going to get into it. But before we do, I'm surprised Jake didn't give it a 9.5. So this criticism might be pretty heavy. Pre-planners, those of you who like to play around with us, play with us. We don't play around on the show. We play games and then we discuss them seriously because we're serious people. Serious um, business only. Serious Welcome business decision only. decision space. New slogan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're going to start every show. Uh, but kidding aside, pre-planners, play games along with us to be prepared. Uh, so we get to tell you about the games that are coming in case you want to try them out. Coming soon to a podcast near you. A Feast for Odin. We're going to cover that. You can play it on Board Game Arena. Uh, Tigris and Euphrates. We're going to cover it at some point soon. Uh, it's an alpha on Board Game Arena, and then courtesy of our Patreon supporters who selected this game, we're going to be covering Great Western Trail at some point in the next few t- times that we do this as well. Um, and interestingly, oh, go Let's for just, it. I just want to linger on that for one split second. Uh, so we have a Patreon. We have eight members right now. We're really trying to get to 10 patrons. That's like our big milestone goal. When we get there, we'll read off all the patrons and consider our show fully crewed up. So what we did was allow, we presented four or five games that we we're interested in covering and let the patrons choose from among those with a poll what game they would like to see us cover first. We might still revisit some of the other games later. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you want to have a little bit of control over the games we cover, uh, make some suggestions, that would be an awesome way to do it. And we will include the link to our Patreon in the show notes of this podcast. You can also find it on decisionspacepodcast.com slash Patreon. Well done. Okay, so getting into it. Great Western Trail was designed by none other than Alexander Pfister, who is also one of the co-designers of Broom Service. Broom Service was designed, co-designed by Andreas Pelican and Alexander Pfister. Uh, notably, Al- Andreas Pelican, if you have not heard his name, designed Witch's Brew in 2008, which is where this core mechanism that we're going to delve into Broom Service really comes from and inspired this design in a lot of ways. And they also, Alexander Pfister and Andreas Pelican, co-designed Isle of Sky, a beloved tile drafting game. If you are familiar with Alexander Pfister's name, but you can't quite place it, that might be because in addition to Great Western Trail, he's also designed games like Port Royal, Mombasa, Maracaibo, and Blackout Hong Kong. I think those are most of the heavy hitters that people tend to mention. So Bruin Service was published in 2015. Uh, by Aaliyah and Ravensburger. Its art is by Vincent Dutre, that beautiful, beautiful art. And like we said earlier, it won the Kenner Spiel DRs. Uh, so whenever a, a game wins the Spiel DRs, or if it is newer, maybe the Kenner Spiel DRs, we like to read the jury's statement that they issue along with that reward just to see what they were thinking at the time. So it's been a while, but we're going to do it. I'm excited. Uh, Jake, why don't you read this one? All right. Thank you. Oh, I think it's my first time. What a privilege. Yes. To be brave or cowardly, this question runs through a game of broom service like a red thread. You constantly have to decide whether you want to take a risky but much more profitable action or whether you prefer to be cautious and take the safe option, creating a real sense of tension and excitement. Breaking an opponent's spell and removing their tactical advantage can lead to truly magical moments, especially nice. Additional advanced variants add even more variety. I love that that's just topped on, just like the expansions and variants themselves. Like, we didn't know where to put this, so we were just going to tack it on at the end, which especially nice, colon. Yeah, like, yeah. Pretty, yeah, by the way, we found this pretty dope. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I think that they totally, I mean, no surprise, kind of nailed it. Um, 
And I, I really love the language of breaking the opponent's spell. But I think that one thing that's so interesting is removing their tactical advantage. I almost like, to me, that aspect of the game... <laughs> It's so hard for me to think of broom service in terms of like tactical advantages because there's so much more going on in the game rather than the raw efficiency of a typical strategy game in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, we'll get into this more, but the way tactics work in this game is sort of twofold in that you have a sequence that you might like to pull off, which is going to be dictated by you and your opponents, but also you can have one key point in your sequence just completely canceled so there's sort of like that tactical advantage and breaking an opponent is always functioning across two different levels simultaneously in this game which i think is what they're referring to here yeah which uh, it's so good like jake said we will get into it before that though if you have never played broom service we want to make sure you're prepared so i re- recorded a quick synopsis a little rules overview to give you an overview in a sense for the game interdecisional spaceship roll brendan's pre-recorded rules overview for broom service broom service is a simultaneous choice sequential action game for two to five players where players take on the role of witches running potion delivery service broom service has a central board depicting areas of different types of terrain peppered with towers waiting deliveries of potions each of broom services seven rounds begin with players selecting four cards from an identical set of 10 cards that each player is given at the start of the game these four cards represent the player's potential actions for the upcoming round and might allow players to take potions from the supply move across the board to a specific type of adjacent terrain, deliver potions, or charm away clouds that might block their paths to potion delivery. After selecting these four cards, the active player selects one of their four cards and plays it, either declaring that they are a brave witch or a cowardly witch. If they are a cowardly witch, then they take the corresponding card effect, and each player in clockwise order following that player must follow their action, meaning they have to play the same card if they have that card in their hand. Then they have to, while playing it, declare if they themselves are brave or cowardly alongside it. If a player selects the brave version of an action, they will receive a better version of the same effect, allowing them to tack on extra actions maybe or scoring them additional points immediately. However, if a player declares that they are brave, then they have to wait to see if any player following them in clockwise order also declares that they are brave. If they do, the previous player doesn't get to take that action at all or any action with that card. The player who last chose brave becomes the active player for the following round, and this cycle plays out again and again until all cards in every player's hand have been played, at which point a new hand of cards is selected and the game plays out again. Navigating the board's map and terrain is key, as towers in the map further away from the starting location for the player's pawns score more points, so there's a real incentive to travel. Depending on player count, certain cards may become bewitched, meaning a player will receive negative three points. They use that action this round. Each round also ends with a random event that shapes the decision space for the round in an interesting, meaningful, and sometimes funny way. After seven rounds of play, the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan, as always, for taking the time to catch people up on this game. Uh, You know, you always do such a great job hitting a few key 
components and, and rules. It's always tough to cover everything. So if you want to, definitely feel free to check out other rules videos or even like sometimes looking at a photo of the board can go a long way to help understand what we're talking about. Oh, now we get to the really good part, which is which we get to talk about broom service and we get to talk about its decision space specifically. Um, one thing that I have to mention about broom service, this two to five player game is for me, Jake, the emotional highs of playing broom service. So often we start with like maybe characterizing the size of the decision space or even the type. But for me, so much of what's meaningful about broom service and why I love this game is the feel of the decision space. Um, it's the decisions are, are so interesting because of the way that information is laid out on the table, uh, you have just enough to really think you have a good understanding of what your opponents want to do. And also at the same time, have like almost no footing to stand on. And so you're in the perfect in-between where you think you can be confident and you also have absolutely no idea. Um, and to me, that's so fun because when you nail a decision, when you know exactly what the person across from you is going to do and you call them out, it feels incredible. And likewise, when you thread the needle and you get to play all four of your cards brave without anyone blocking you, that feels amazing. Can I ask, before we dive too much into this further, what player counts have you primarily played at? Because I'm imagining, you just knowing your situation with COVID and everything, that you've probably primarily played it too um, but have you got to play it more as well i have gotten to play it at higher player counts too so i've played it at three um and i've played it at four i have to say most of my plays have been at two and i'm so glad that you brought this up at the outset because of the way the core mechanism works player count is really important what about you jake you've mostly yeah. played higher yeah mostly higher i think i've only played at two player once with bridget and i think it works well i was actually because I had played so much at higher player counts before, I was sort of, I honestly like playing this game at four player counts, at four players or even five players, which I've also done, which is pretty wild. Um, you would think that this game would not work at all at two because of that like dynamic around the table is, is so compelling. Um, but I, it, with the two player variant, there is like small tweaks, the rules, right. That, that allows you to, uh, it, it has like certain spaces, right? That you are trying to go to or not go to. Is that right? You can add that. You can add amulets that amp it up. The biggest change is- No, no, no. All right, sorry. Yeah, say Oh, well, I was gonna say the bewitch cards are the biggest thing. Just the presence of more bewitch cards to tighten the decision space a little bit more. These are cards that are uh, randomly set out. They're actions that you're taking potentially. Um, and if you pick these actions, you randomly select three at two players, put them on the table. If you pick that action, you get negative three points. So it adds a little yeah, bit more tension. Right, and a little about? bit. That's exactly what I was talking about. I was getting it uh, conflated with the event card that uh, is like protected spaces. Ah, uh, yep. Which works kind of similarly. Uh, yeah, it's been a little while since I've played it at two. So thank you for the refresher. Um, but yes, yeah, so that gives you like a little bit extra knowledge, or, you know, or just like incentivizes certain actions more than others, which makes it more likely that you'll be stepping on each other's toes in a two player game compared yep. to like a four or five player game where it's just like 100% inevitable that you're going to be stepping on everybody's toes all the time. And a lot of it ends up being sort of jockeying for, am I in the right seat to be taking this action brave versus is this the right position to be taking brave from? Um, which I think one thing that I really enjoy is seeing how it changes at higher player counts, like you said, because that calculus becomes really 
really easy or really difficult depending on how things go. But I'll say my rating is almost entirely of this as a two player game. Like I love this as a two player game. I wouldn't even call that version a variant. I just think it's perfectly designed. It works really well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Um, So should we get into the characterization of the decision space? I think that'd be awesome. What do you what do you think? So I think that to me, the decision space overall, and I think it's an interesting one because I think it's pretty static. Mm -hmm. And I think typically when we think of static decision spaces, uh, so for those who are perhaps new to decision space, uh, a static decision space would mean that the decision space doesn't change over time. You always are afforded essentially the exact same options. And that's something we see a lot more in simpler games. Often we kind of see that in abstract games. Um, So it's kind of interesting to see a decision space in a game that really does have the sort of bells and whistles that we're more familiar with in these kind of thematic Euro games. Um, But the reason I think it's static is because you always have options. You always have the two witches, you basically, no matter where you are at the bo- on the board, more or less, you'll have roughly the same amount of available spaces you can move into. You always have the same 10 cards uh, that will be available to you at the beginning of each round. Where it gets a little hazy is like, of course, as the round plays out, you'll have fewer cards to pick from. But I think so much of that is dictated by other players anyway. That that's such a small component of it that I don't I don't know that I would call it waning because of that. What do you think? Yeah, the decision. I agree that I wouldn't call this a waning decision space game because, it, and what we mean by that, right, is over the course of the game, the you know, in a waning decision space game, the decisions that you're making would shrink and shrink, and you'd have fewer viable decisions available to you. And I, I completely agree, Jake. I think it's a a really interesting static decision space that shifts. Right. So like in the two player version, when you're playing the bewitch cards, it moves a little bit to the left, let's say, uh, in metaphorical terms. Right. Because it's saying these three cards are much less efficient to use this round. If you have a really good reason why to go there, maybe you can outthink your opponent, make this risky call and use a card that no one's using. But it sort of is redirected. And I think the event cards also will get into all these sort of systems and talk about them in more depth but also do this where they just focus the decisions a little bit more and give you more information to filter uh, to think about and sort of filter your decisions through but overall it it remains fairly static you could have fewer potions or more potions um, but you start with some endowed progress you have one potion of each color and a wand one of the game's other resource types Um, So I think that that's another decision that makes it feel quite static because you're going to be going up and down in potions overall. And you really want to be in the position of having no potions of a color because you've overplayed your seat a little bit. People know what you might be aiming for. Or if you focus too much on one thing, one color of delivering potions to a specific tower type, then you're going to become obvious as well. So the game really behooves you to treat it in that way where you always have a few potions in the back pocket. Yeah, it's interesting too because... Let's say you take a lot of time to just get a lot of resources, which is something you could do early in the game, right? It's essentially the objective of the game to score points is pick up and deliver. You're taking, you're collecting potions and you're delivering them to towers. So you could spend a lot of time picking up potions. So you have like a massive supply of potions, Um, but that doesn't actually increase your decision space at all if anything because it it, if anything it shrinks it because now you only are trying to deliver potions 
because you have no need to gain more. So it's kind of weird where like in a lot, so many games, right? If it's an engine building game or a tableau building game, like getting more resources gives you more options on your turn. And here it kind of doesn't work that way. If anything, it might give you less. Part of the reason Jake is saying this too is because the the best way to convert potions to points is through delivering them to towers, just period. The set collection offered to you at the end of the game uh, for if you get points for having three of the four resources, a set of those, or four of the four, but they're really not lucrative. You're, you're going to do much better getting your potions uh, to, to those in need. So that really incentivizes you not sort of playing too hard in that direction. Let's get into Yomi, Jake, if we can. Yeah, Is that okay? which I, yeah absolutely. And I think like I was going to say, let's talk about clarity of the decision space. And I think you have to talk about Yomi to sort of understand how clear or opaque this decision space is awesome so yomi is a is a term borrowed from japanese that means something along the lines of knowing the mind of your opponent and to play broom service well i feel and i'm curious what jake is going to say i feel yomi is very important certainly the fact that i've played this game mostly at two emphasizes this point because it becomes a zero-sum game um in terms of the decisions that we're making but i still think even at the higher player counts i it's so important to know uh when you're selecting cards uh if the option presents itself if you should choose brave or not right everyone who's seated to your left could potentially block you if you say play the fruit gatherer card and or let's say jake goes first he plays fruit gatherer brave i can choose to play it brave or cowardly and i have to decide do I think it's worth it to play it brave and get blocked by someone to my left? Or should I just play it cowardly and get the smaller effect that's still good uh, and miss on that opportunity? So, so much of this game lives in the, the game space of Yomi, of knowing the mind of your opponent. I think one of the most fun uh, implementations of that, for lack of a better word, is in a higher player count game where you lead off it's like a five person game and you think it's very likely somebody else has the card and you just go brave. And then the person and the person to your left has the card and are now in that same position. Right. And I've seen it so many times where it's like, okay, maybe the the first person went brave. Now it's my choice. Do I want to go brave or cowardly? It's like, I have to, get this action and i don't want to be canceled so maybe i just go cowardly thinking somebody else has it but nobody ends up having it so the first person then is like rewarded in for it for this you know and it's like even if it gets to the third person now they're still like oh man the other two people both had this card like somebody else after me is probably likely to have it so what do i do so it's just like really fun how that decision iterates down the line of players when you're playing in a four or five player game no absolutely and one thing you talked about sequencing so much and i think that that's really important in light of this mechanic and i feel like we have to talk about this now just because it's going to filter in so many of the other things which is that when you get canceled right jake said if if you go brave and then someone else calls brave it's not that you do the lesser effect you just do no effect so if you were planning to link together two or three actions in a row, right? To I'm going to use my prairie witch to move my pawn into the prairie. Then I'm going to move, play my forest witch to move that same pawn into the forest. Well, if you go prairie witch and you get canceled on that movement, you could have a card that literally does nothing for you at this point because you have no forest near you to move towards. Or worse, right? Somebody, 
or not worse, but almost exactly the same. If your plan is to go Prairie Wits and Forest Witch, and the first player leads off with Forest Witch, they don't even have to cancel you with a brave action. They've already completely interrupted your entire turn by simply forcing you to play out of sequence. And I think that is one of the, you know, that that's what I'm talking about when I say like the interaction and like blocking happens on two levels. Vectors. I feel, yeah, two vectors. I feel like that is often to me when I'm playing this game, even more like apparent by looking at the board where I can say like, okay, this person is, I can tell where they're headed, right? Like they're going to the mountain space in the corner because that has a very profitable uh, tower, especially if you're playing with like the amulets, like I know they're going there uh, and likely trying to deliver there. So if I can play my card that delivers to mountain spaces now before they've had the opportunity to enact that, it's going to seriously slow them down, if not like outright, you know, cancel one of their cards without even taking the risk of playing a brave action. Totally. And so what Jake mentioned too is why he knows people are going to the Northeast. The way that points are spread across the board, essentially you're getting more points the further you start in the Southwest and you get more points for going to the Northeast. Uh, We're talking about the front side of the board right now, but this is true of both sides more or less. Um, Which is one thing I love about the design of this game is that Yes, the board is very open. There's tons of spaces that connect to other spaces. Almost every space is touching between, you know, three and five other spaces. There's lots of flexibility, but the design really um, incentivizes everyone kind of flocking together in a way that it ensures you'll have enough information, but you also could get too crowded into there. So it makes the the game of Yomi happening in this game about how greedy do I think you might actually try to be in this game, um, which I think that's wonderful because that produces joy when I can say, right, like if I'm trying to understand uh, certain desires of Jake, it's really fun to nakedly call him out for his brutal ambition and getting some certain really greedy payoff that's funny for both of us right because jake's like ah oh, you caught me i was being a greedy jerk and i'm like you greedy jerk um so it it just the way that the design leans into that and incentivizes that is so smart um so often when you're going brave like for the witches when you're going brave these are the cards that dictate movement through the board right so there's four of them mountain forest prairie and hill um you can call cowardly and you just get to move and moving is really good because just like we said moving further is increasing the number of points you're going to get eventually so you just you want to move it's very strong but if you're brave you also get to deliver a potion so you just get way more points naturally you're delivering more or maybe you don't have anything at all right like so there's times where going brave doesn't mean anything to you especially with the witches um, so there, there are often times when you might choose to go cowardly just so that you don't have to lead the next mm. trick or whatever, you know, the next card, um, because it's like being the last in turn order in broom service, especially in a high player ga- game feels amazing because it guarantees that if you have the card that the person led with, you can, you know, play brave without anyone having the opportunity to counter you. Uh, And that is like 
it feels you feel so powerful in that moment like you that's found, right found solid footing but the flip side is because of the power of sequencing going first is also really good it can but be absolutely. it can be but one thing also that you said that i want to just highlight a moment in this game that i love is exactly what you just said jake where like you are you're like leading the tricks right and you go cowardly hoping oh what am i trying to say Basically, a situation where you're trying to give up the right to go first, right? Like, this would happen with Maya and I sometimes, where one of us would call cowardly on an action because we think the other player probably has it. And mm-hmm. then they'll still call cowardly because they don't want to be the one who has to go first next it's, round. It's like the less important brave action. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it feels crushing. It just crushes your soul. You're like, I was trying to give up going first because I didn't want it. It's really interesting, too, because there really is a tier kind of to me a power difference between brave and cowardly on various cards which Mm. fluctuates throughout the game depending on situation but like going brave on the it's the uh druids right the ones that that deliver for three extra that deliver for three extra that's nice like you'd always rather have three extra points but like when you compare that to the herb fruit and what's the other one uh the herb gatherer the root gatherer and the fruit gatherer yeah compared to those like those actions are three times more powerful when you go brave instead of getting a singular potion or wand you're getting three resources so compare that to like getting you know seven points or ten points it's like so much more impactful to be able to go brave on those especially i mean early in the game and that changes late in the game you don't care as much about having extra potions you'd rather have extra points and there are certain moments of the game where being able to move and deliver it just means like everything to you like, especially on on the last turn you know that could be the that could be a 10 point play alone for you if you get to do it so it's interesting how that changes but it's also sort of like a knowable thing uh based on the situation in the game so i think that's also something that like heavily impacts the the yomi that's going on between players really interestingly too these all give you different places i think we should talk about the card some we talked about uh, the gatherers the well fruit sorry go for it jake i just want to say the last thing on sort of like yomi for me is like what makes the why this makes the decision space so rich in broom service you know, maybe compared to other games that also have a similar sort of thing, it like it feels like in Broom Service, like that is the game. And I think it's something that can like sort of rub me wrong when it's like a small element of a game, right? If I'm playing this like big like resource conversion Euro game uh, that's like mostly an efficiency puzzle and there's like a single element where it's like, oh yeah, like I kind of, you know, like we're, we can interact and block each other in this way. I can find like annoying, mm. but because in broom service, like it feels like, you know, like you really are playing poker, right? You like the whole thing is knowing what other people are trying to do. And in that way, it like when you get got, it's not annoying. It's like, that's the game. Yes. And, and also like, because that's the game, it creates like so many like magical like double thing moments. Like we talked about the situation where somebody's in the corner and you know they want to deliver in the mountain in the very corner of the board. But like, what if they don't do that this turn? 
because they know that everybody thinks that they're trying to do that, which creates these hilarious moments where everybody's looking at your board position. They're like, okay, well, surely Brendan has the Hill Witch. Like, so I'm definitely going to go cowardly, even though, you know, only Brendan is going next because it's obvious that's where he's trying to go. And then Brendan's sitting there, sheepishly, like, pass. And they're like, what? Yeah. Like, you know, and it's, and that also, that's, and the last thing on it too is like, the final like layer of that is it also means that it super rewards playing like an ambiguous board state. Like if you mm-hmm. can set up a situation where you can do a bunch of different things, like you have a good diversity of resources. So it's less clear, you know, what tower you'd like to deliver. Uh, it also means like you can sort of benefit from your cards, regardless of the sequence they come out in and trying to like create those situations has creates this element for like really next level skill. And I think like heightens the skill ceiling uh, to a point like much higher than, than you might think of like a simple, like I know what you know, so I'm going to do something else. Like there's a lot to this. The tightness of the design behind the game, the, the more classic strategy elements that are brought in go so do so much to support the player in their endeavors to playing the game well even when other players are getting in the way right like the the areas are connected to enough different terrain types that there's probably a way to salvage it and like there it's so interesting because like you said jake i sort of talked about in my intro how some of the joy of this game is the epiphany of understanding others, but the flip side of Yomi is also the epiphany of tricking others um, and deceiving others. And the game is both. And just like the game is about finding and pulling that red, the pulling through the most efficient path on the board. It doesn't make that the game in the way that you're saying. So there's like just enough Euro strategy elements to ground the game in a way that makes its decision space really compelling on a like, logos level but then all of the other cards and every other design decision is just all pathos and lets you pour your soul into these moments of laying yourself like completely naked or bare or completely tripping your friend and i i don't know i'm not even doing a good job talking about the game in the way we normally do because i just love it that much i feel like i was also just like i hope my excitement's coming through because i think my rambling was like less eloquent than i had hoped but it truly has that like fighting game thing right where it's like i race to the corner and on my next move i'm getting there to capture the most powerful tower that's going to give me the most points and then at the last second i just stop and i do something completely different and like absolutely cross over my opponents in the exact same way that you might do in, in like a fighting video game where it's like okay i'm running at you for like a giant assault i'm jumping in and you think I'm going to attack, but I just don't. And it completely throws off your guard and I do something else and, you know, completely flip the script on you. It's so possible and so fun in this game. And it, the, the amazing thing about it is like that advanced level play is so accessible here, right? It, it's not like I, you know, if I'm watching a fighting game tournament, uh, and it's a game I know well. Like I know I'm I'm getting so much more out of it than somebody who wouldn't know the game or whatever. Um, but like here, it's like it could be someone who doesn't even play modern board games, and it's still accessible. Like that, the Yomi here is still accessible to them if they're familiar with the con basic concepts in poker of of bluffing. Yeah. No. Absolutely. 
And Jake brings that up in part because Yomi is a term that's really borrowed from the like fighting video game scene and board game. There, there are awesome board games that are fighting games too. Um, but I think we should talk about the cards because the okay, cards fine. are really the tools that we use to express <laughs> ourselves, right? They're the yeah. tools in which we enact Yomi. So we'll like we'll we'll lay these out and then we'll use them to just keep talking about Yomi throughout the rest of the episode because that's what we're gonna do. I just know it. So we talked about the gatherers. These are three cards: the fruit gatherer, the root gatherer, and the herb gatherer. That basically, in different ways, let you take potions of the three different colors: orange, green, and purple. Or also wands, which are this other side resource that you're using through another card, the the weather fairy, to charm away clouds that could block your path. Um, the weather, the clouds basically function as this set collection mini game where you're trying to collect lightning bolts on them. And there's better conversions, uh, worse conversions, where you have to spend more pa- pa- uh, more wands for fewer endgame points, essentially, or fewer wands for more endgame points. So paying attention to those can really matter. Um, and sometimes they are just off to the side of areas and you have to be in an area adjacent to them to charm the way. Or sometimes they'll block areas, uh, which can be really important because if they're blocking your path, they're blocking everyone's path. So you're pretty disin- disincentivized from uncovering it unless it's a really good payoff, at which point maybe you really do want to uncover it. And it just amplifies that sequencing game a little bit with this one other way to interact and this nuanced little extra thing to think about aside from the potion delivery puzzle. Right. I think this is totally an aside, but do you, have you found that the uh, points from clouds, the lightning bolt points are really strong in this game? I think that it behooves you to definitely not ignore the puzzle unless maybe the payoffs come out in such a way that like the clouds are just really bad at the start or something. So by the time you get further to the Northeast, the payoffs are a little bit better, but I, Mm -hmm. yeah, the the points feel pretty meaningful. Um, Yeah. It also, it also depends a lot on, I think like what variants you're including in the game too. But yeah, just anecdotally, I've, I have found those to be quite strong. And especially if, if you, you know, choose that as your like main strategy of collecting a lot of lightning bolts to like get towards the top end of the points. Uh, that that I think it can be a very very strong baseline path to go down. This is also balanced by classic sort of rock paper scissors type elements within strategic paths because the more people going for the strategy, the worse that it gets all of a sudden, right? Because if lots of people are doing it, they're getting the more efficient payoffs. All of a sudden, it's not very efficient at all and it behooves you all to kind of do something else. So that's another thing about this game that's so good is if you overinvest in any one direction, it can actually be quite bad. Right, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the the witches and the druids just really quickly, Jake? We've kind of talked about them some, but I think delving into them a little bit more could be helpful for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things also uh, that makes this game like surprisingly great as sort of a gateway game or a game to bring in non-gamers is while there are 10 cards in your hand, which feels like a lot, there are only four different types of cards. So there's three gatherer cards that give you resources and there are four uh, witches, which are the movement cards. So there's the mountain witch that allows you to move to mountain spaces, the prairie witch, which does the same for prairies, a forest witch, and a hill witch. So uh, as we mentioned, those are the ones where you can move to the different terrain types on the board, as well, assuming that there's an adjacent terrain of that type. So that's why you can get into these situations where 
a forest witch card is played, forcing you to reveal the forest witch you have in your hand, but you're not next adjacent to any forest. So it's a, a wasted card. Um, and the way those work brave is not only do you get to move, but you get to move and deliver a potion, which can be really nice. And especially in the final turns of the game, uh, it can mean, you know, that the only way that you're getting to deliver an extra potion uh, early in the game, it's okay to go cowardly and like, okay, we'll all have plenty of time to deliver a potion here on a, on a subsequent turn. Uh, but of course, if it's the last turn of the game, that oh, I think can be a pretty swingy way uh, that, that a big point change can be decided because it could be as many as like nine or 10 points to you, especially as you're getting to the outer reaches of the board where delivering a potion is worth the most points to you. And early on, you could be getting just two two uh, points in a wand or three points for it. So it's huge. Um, and I love that shift throughout the game. We've talked some, Jake, about how even with static decision spaces where the types of decisions that you're making are feel the same every single time, when the, the sort of math can shift behind them, that can sort of breathe life into those decisions in a way that's really interesting where it's shifting for everyone at the same time. And the final type that Jake was yeah, yeah. going so the to final, get into. So the final type is the druid. So these are your uh, cards that allow you to deliver potions. So the valley druid allows you to deliver to valley type spaces, which counts as prairies and forests. And the peak druid allows you to deliver potions to mountains and hills and I think it's a really smart design decision that these are a lot more flexible. Um, it would be pretty rough. And I think just a very different game overall if there were also four Druid cards. Uh, that would make it much more likely that you would not be able to deliver a potion uh, at all using one of these cards if, if your sequence got thrown off at all. Um, and so with two, that co- each covering half the spaces on the board, Frequently, when you get thrown off a sequence, it means not that you get to do nothing with your druid, but that you just get to do something much less efficient, like delivering a potion to a tower worth only four points compared to seven or eight had you been able to move first. And I will say, Jake, I do think that the the brave calling brave, which gives you three bonus points, three extra victory points. If you are able to do it enough throughout the course of the game, it can add up in a really meaningful way, right? Like if I do that three times, that's nine extra points. Um, So I feel like calling your shots with those can be really impactful. I think that might also speak to the fact that you've been playing more at two player. Sure. And I've been playing more at a higher player count. Definitely. Uh, Because at a higher player count, like, I, it's you know the there's such a premium on on like brave actions where it might not even be worth it to get three points if it means three extra points if it means like you have to lead the next card yeah and you're less likely to get be able to play one of your like druids brave where you like i mentioned you get three times the benefit your gatherers uh, or yeah yeah sorry the gatherers i always get the cards mixed no up. you're good um so i think like that speaks to that uh, just the difference in player count, which is a cool thing. Like the 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 value of these cards is going to change a lot depending on your player count. Do you have a favorite player count? That's interesting. I think like five is like too much. I think it just forces a little bit more conservative play because it's just so likely that you're going to get countered and early in early in the turn that you just like forced to play. 
cowardly all the time. So I think three and or four is probably the best. Where sometimes like you know, at a four player count, there's at least like a small percent chance that just going like full on wild cowboy and leading brave uh, with the first card like can work out. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think I like- they all, I think they all work. They yeah absolutely to that one thing that we should mention for people who haven't bl- played broom service is you're controlling two witches at a time, um so you have two different witch pawns on the board so it's sort of doubling the amount of information that you would have to filter through at higher player counts right the board just has a lot going on, um but I will say I I think it's interesting that the game's fuzziness how much you can be sure of your decisions on a given turn grows at higher player counts and shrinks at lower player counts, but still remains moderately fuzzy. I think I love it at two. I also really liked my play at three. I think by the time you get to four, that's where the shift really starts to become apparent. And by five, you're just in Zane land. It's just, yeah, yeah. yeah it's all donkey. <laughs> right. No, that's, yeah. that's, that's definitely true. Um, and I think the other really interesting thing about two witches, since you mentioned that is that, the way the board and the, it's hard it's hard to say i really want to talk about the different like variants that are included in the box so That's this, th- this is kind of contingent on that but like assuming you're playing just the base game with no extra stuff at all the most efficient way to play it would be just using one witch the entire time to get progressively like further down the board uh so that you're delivering potions that are getting increasingly more and more valuable to you and i think that's just like an like it kind of tricks you because it doesn't like when as like a modern board game player when you look at your board and you're like i have these two things like the first thing you immediately think is like okay i want to like use these both and maximize Mm. them but that's not really i think i don't know maybe i'm wrong but i think like it's probably less efficient however the trade-off is that is what makes your board position a lot more ambiguous to the other players at the table. And flexible in terms of right. responding to other people leading and having to take actions at other times. But I just like how there's like that risk and reward baked in to, uh, and, and it's something that kind of like grows and shifts as you play the game, like how much risk you want to include into your game state. Your path, yeah. One thing that's amazing about room service that Jake alluded to and that the spiel jury alluded to is the fact that when this game was published in 2015 uh they give you a ton of content in the box uh the game i think if it was published today would come with just the front side of the board maybe maybe the back and probably not a ton of other stuff that's also included in it so there's like a bunch of baked in expansion comment uh, content i think this would be like it'd be like at least two expansions today it feels like yeah there's a lot so there's storm clouds amulets mountain tiles the back side of the board forest tiles and hill tiles that's a lot right that's a ton of different things so what have you played with i have played with the storm clouds uh the amulets and the mountain tiles and have you played with them all together i have not played with them all together yeah what do you so think I, i've i've played with everything to like try out at least one can you remind me just because it's been i should have done a little bit more research or refresh my memory can you remind me what the difference is between the hill tiles and the forest tiles i remember the forest ones i think are like they 
like if you're the first to a space to get to pick one up and that's like something you can use later i just don't remember the hill tiles i don't have them in front of me i wish that i, I thought I the did. thing with i thought the thing with hills was just on the back side of the board it is just on the back side of the board okay it's just on the back side of the board and it gives you a boost where you can like teleport around yes the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay okay that's why i was confused yeah so so it's really interesting um I can kind of, I can kind of like give you my tier Do ranking it. of them, but I will say also like I've played with everything at once on the backside of the board, which is also totally something you can do, but probably should not. <laughs> at least for the people I was playing with, it was I, I I kind of to be honest, if you're playing this game with like hardcore gamers that like heavier stuff, if you're like a heavy board game player, like do it. Then you have a heavy game. And it's so crazy that this game is that flexible to be a gateway game and a heavy game at the same time. Same time. The uh, only other game I can think like that that does that off the top of my head is Taverns of Tiefenthal, mm. if, you, if you're familiar with that, which similarly has a ton of expansion seeming content in the box and, and scales up from like a super light game to a, a med- medium heavy game. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool that it, it, it affords you that option. I want you to give the rundown of everything that you enjoy. Okay. So I think that the amulets are the worst. So the amulets uh, are this these tokens that you put in the three corners of the board that you don't start in, and you get increasing payouts for everyone that you collect. So if you get to the different corners of the board, you're getting more points. Why are they the worst, Jay? I don't like them because it just seems like that's an over-centralizing strategy. It seems Mm. to me like when the amulets are included, it's just too many points to ignore. So everyone kind of is trying to do the exact same thing or losing to that, which I guess kind of creates a dynamic where you have like, it forces more people into the same area. But I just don't think it's like worth the, like that is worth the rub that like now you have to do this. It just takes away too much agency for me. So I don't like that, but I do like the mountain tiles, which works similarly, but uh, it doesn't like force you to follow that very specific path. So the mountain tiles, when you go there, you get to do a one-time effect. To get and this a could be like taking one potion of each color from the supply, getting two wands, moving two of your witches once, or moving one of your witches twice. Uh, cool effects that you don't get elsewhere. I really like these. Yeah, so I would say those are like A tier for me. So we got we got solid for amulets, C or D tier. Then we got A tier, mountain, what's next? Forest tiles, I think these are like B tier. They don't really add a whole ton to the strategy of the game, but it is gives you like a nice little extra consideration. So I think, you know, these definitely to me are a positive thing to have in the game at the cost of just like a little bit extra rules overhead. So I think if you're uh, have played it a few times and just want to try something different, definitely play with the hill tiles or the sorry the the forest tiles but i don't think like the game is tremendously better for having them these are single use tiles uh that you get to claim when you get to that forest space first and you can only use them on the back side of the board um, yeah yeah i think like i would say c tier is the hill tiles 
those are the ones that allow you to when you play on the back side of the board i think you have to play you with have these. to play on the back yep. yeah it's like literally printed on the board um and it allows you to teleport from one part of the board to the other and it's kind of interesting in that um you have to like there's at least one section of the board where you can like teleport to but you can't get off of so then you're like stuck there if you ever go there have you used these like the I back have side not. Of the board? i have not played the back side of the board yet yeah i don't know like i i don't think the back side of the board for for whatever reason and i, I probably haven't played it enough to like know for sure but i just feel like maybe it's just like a little bit less balanced i don't maybe mm. not maybe i shouldn't say balanced but just the fact that like it doesn't seem like zooming around teleporting around the board is, adds much it's to not me. as focused maybe it just feels like a little bit more chaotic than yeah. the front side of the board so i think if you like a little bit more uh chaos like sure like it's fine it's it's just like a little bit of variability but to me it doesn't really add anything it doesn't really detract much either and lastly storm clouds storm clouds storm clouds are s tier I think storm clouds just make the game better and I always play with them. But what are they? Oh yeah. The storm clouds is like you replace, I think like eight or 11 of the clouds that you populate the board with at the beginning, which are basic with storm clouds and the storm clouds mean when you charm away the cloud, you get some other benefit along with it. Like maybe you also get a wand or you also get a potion or you're allowed to, uh, trade in a set of potions for trade like a in bunch of potions or move a witch or one of them or maybe a couple of them even tr- are like a static effect that increases the value of towers adjacent to them so to me this is like the ideal thing to just like add variability change the game up so you can keep playing on the front side of the board which is awesome but it just changes the landscape a little bit in really fun and meaningful ways. Uh, so I always like to include them. I think the storm clouds add to the strategic depth of the game and open up some paths that are a little bit harder to make work. Otherwise, I really like the storm clouds. I actually liked the amulets at two players just because I think at two sometimes, right? I could see how at higher player counts, they could be annoying. They force everyone in the same direction, but at two, they force everyone in the same direction which is nice when otherwise you could just go off on your own ways and like and not interact as and much and not interact as much and I like that they force you into the southwest portion of the board which normally I think you just kind of ignore at two players because it's not as useful moving in that direction. Um, yeah. I found getting all three is kind of tough. Okay, yeah. You have to be kind of focused on it. You really have to be focused on them. But if you do it, then it's kind of like a win I've found at like higher player accounts. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think like my preferred way to play this game would be like with storm clouds, with mountain tiles, um, and then probably just there. If you're playing with all experienced players, throw in the forest tiles as well. Nice. I love the. I will say it's so fun having all this other stuff in the in the box. Maya and I have played this game a bunch now, uh, and when we sit down to play, I think we assume we're playing with nothing. And discuss if we're adding more, which I think is partially just how we play, but also we just the base game is that good, right? Yeah. And it's, doesn't it just like I am really hesitant on this podcast to like recommend somebody buy a game because there are just like so many games out there. Most people listening in probably have a hundred games on their shelves, you know, and that are fantastic, or maybe you have twenty games, or maybe you have five games that you love. 
are going to have a rewarding experience playing with. And there's just so many great games out there. Like, it's hard to recommend one. But I think, like, this game is just, like, an unequivocal buy for me. And part of it is maybe just, it's just because, like, it just feels like you're getting such a screaming value. You have a game that plays great from two to five players. And it feels like it includes, like, literally three expansions worth of content in the box. And the price is low. I mean, I guess I don't know what the price is. It now. used to be. Now it's out it, of print. No. Yeah. <laughs> but so what we're really saying is get it now before it gets prohibitively expensive to buy it on the secondary market for years while people are extolling its virtues like us. Yeah, that's right. It's, I think that to add to this, Jake, though, one thing is you probably have 100 games on your shelf. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you have two games on your shelf and it's awesome that you're listening to Decision Space and you're excited about games. Um, yeah, and you're thank welcome you. here. I didn't mean to be like gatekeeper yeah, yeah. Like, No, yeah. no, no. I don't think you were being that way. But I just want to say that I think that one thing that's amazing about room service is I think it's going to be different than almost any game in your collection. Um, and the veneer of it might look like a lot of other games, but I think there's few games that play out in this way. And surely... I can't think of another that does it as well as room service. Can we talk to, I feel like we're getting close. I'm noting the time we're getting kind of close to the end, but I, we haven't talked about the event card. Yes. That you play with. We have to do that. 10 in the base game, uh, 10 in the game and you pick seven randomly from this deck and this deck of event cards functions as the game clock. Uh, the timer for the game after these seven cards are used the game is over and it feels like these cards ended up in the game because of the design problem of well if it's going to be a seven round game how are we going to know when the game is over okay we'll add this event deck and then when i first started playing with them and these cards actually just give you some sort of modifier for that round so jake mentioned it earlier there's one that's sort of like if your witches are in these train at the end of the round lose this many points based on the region or uh, one is called the upper hand, which says everyone at the end of the round hides a random number of resources of their choosing from their from their supply in their hand and then reveals them. The player who reveals the most loses them and gets eight points. So that's one that like leans into the Yomi. There's other ones that sort of say you must choose brave the first time you call an action every round. How are you going to play that? That fundamentally changes the rules of the entire game. So there's 10 of these you use seven each time. What do you think of them, Jake? Well, first of all, I think seven rounds is the perfect length for this game. Like, it ends just when it should. Uh, you know, one more round, I feel like it would get into that territory where it's I you feel like you were you accomplished everything you wanted to. Um, and with seven rounds, you very rarely feel like that. Maybe one in 20 games, you have, like, the perfect game, and you're like, yes, I got my sequence perfect on that last round, I've done it, which just feels really satisfying. <laughs> Um, and, and it doesn't overstay its welcome either. I mean, it's a pretty short game because of it. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think the cards are great. Like it adds just a really interesting texture. Some of them don't change much like the ones that uh, incentivize different spaces, but that like texture does give you extra insight into the cards that other players around the table might pick or not, which is really fun and interesting to think through uh, when you're picking the cards you'll use for the round. And then other cards are just like totally insane and very fun when they pop up. Like the one that you're, you're forced to play Brave, like fundamentally changes the game and what type of cards you might pick. And that's really wild to think through, especially at higher player count games. Um, and then 
The, the my favorite one though is the one that allows you to pick how many cards you want mm. to start with in your hand. So like, so instead, normally you always pick four cards that you'll have for the round. But this card allows you to pick up to five. If you pick five, you lose three points to do it. Four is zero, or you can gain points. Increasingly, more points going all the way down to like. If you only want one card, you can get like 12 points for free or something like Ten. that. 10 points. 10, yeah. yeah, which is totally wild and, and, and completely like changes like the core of the game uh, in, in like a really fun, interesting way, but it still works and it still creates like really rich and interesting decisions and makes every play different, Are even you f- if you're doing just the base game. Do you always play five? What? With that, when that event comes out, do you always play five cards? Or are you, I'm, are you, I are mean, you I'm a it it it's I mean it depends. It's a, a depends situation, but I'm definitely someone who would skew more towards playing more cards because that's just who I am. My eyes meta has shifted towards you have to play five because if if one of you goes one and the other player just gets there's no balancing mechanism right, of like at other two people player. at two player. So like when that comes up, we're like all well, all in. It's going to be a really fun round because we get to play five cards, which I also sort of love. It's different than it plays out at higher player counts where you can rely on other people to balance that out. Um, but I, I like that card a lot too. Yeah, um, it, it does seem. I mean, I've seen it people like effectively go down to two or three and, and have turns that make feel it really count. strong. Yeah. Or like when it's like, you know, towards the end of the game, maybe or early in the game, or like early. what happens if that's your first card? Yeah. You know, maybe you're fine with just taking get your 12 points, 10 points and get your information. <laughs> yeah. But I think that one interesting thing about these cards is just like the bewitch cards that kind of sit there on the table, where if you call them in that round, you get negative points. They just add a little bit of focus to this decision space that for this round says, just kind of look here. And I think that's brilliant that the game has that variability. And I didn't love these the first time I played with them. I thought they felt like a concession when I was learning the game. Even I was like, oh, that's a bummer that these this one not elegant mechanic in this game. And I'm like, no, I want more. I want an expansion of 10 of these cards. And they're just, they're good. They're really fun. It made me, it, it redeemed the idea in my mind that an event deck can be good and amplify what's good about a game rather than just be kind of like putsy and sad. Yeah. You know what? As we were talking about it, the other game mechanism, it kind of reminds me of is uh, Voyages of Marco Polo, uh, where people always talk about the game and, and what they talk about is like how there's these like crazy player powers that fundamentally break the rules of the game. And these event cards do this for this game. It's, it's obviously not the same because it's not like unique to you, but some of these things when they come up uh, just completely turn everything on its head in a really interesting way and they make you go like wait what like i have to go brave like what i could just get however many cards i want uh or, or one of the other ones i think like every time you have an action like instead of taking that action you could just get a resource like any yeah. resource type and that totally changes things as well so i think i i really love these cards i think they're well designed and, and just like Another thing that just adds that like really fun type of variability where that makes every play unique. They give more, even more room too for interesting decisions where you feel smart because you think about how this round is playing out slightly differently. So I'm going to change my behavior in this way or my opponent's going to do this because of this card. And because you're putting those two pieces together, all of a sudden you feel even more, you feel clever because you connected multiple lines rather than a more linear 
thing where you're just connecting one line um, where like, I see this, so this, it's like, I see this and this and this, so this, and it's just, it's so good. That's so smart. And it's so simple. Um, it is, I, I would say like reading them when you don't know them is annoying, but once you know them, the, the fact that there's only 10 actually does kind of become a benefit because you instantly know there's no rules overhead almost. It, they're pretty short. I mean, like you can read, like you don't have to, and also you don't have to know them going in. I, you know, we, no, you don't. Yeah. we criticize some other games. Cause like, Oh, well, you have to know this whole deck of cards to be good at it. And I don't feel like these cards really play that in a way, way that it helps you at all. If you know what potentially could be coming, maybe like the slightest advantage um, towards the end of the game it's like oh i guess i could leave this on the prairie space because it maybe it'll be worth two points in the next round or something but very very slight if any advantage to knowing the deck um so brent i almost forgot we're coming to the end of the episode i forgot to talk about my like major criticism Yeah, what's your major criticism <laughs> so my major criticism is and i'm not surprised that you haven't encountered this because it's definitely a higher player count thing which is just that this game is it presents as like this sweet, charming package, but it is incredibly, incredibly cutthroat. Mm. And I'm sure you've experienced that at two players where it's very zero sum, but at five players or four players, like there is going to be a player in this game that just gets absolutely destroyed and lapped by the other players. I've seen it every time. It's been me, it, you know, it's been Bridget, it's been friends that I've had over for like a casual game night, but somebody is just going to get destroyed in this game. And it's, there's not really much you can do about it. It's just like virtue of the mechanisms. And, and here's why I think it happens. One, you know, in a lot of games you get to pick who you want to try and beat down. So you yeah. can say like, okay, this person's doing well, so I'm going to try and counter them. Here, you can't do that at all. You know, if you're, if somebody, if you're at the end of the round and you want to call brave to get the benefit, like that might hurt the best player or the, per, not the best player, but the person with the, the leader in the game, or it might hurt the person that has the fewest points in the game. It's just kind of, uh, luck of the draw but further than that it's i think it's actually more likely to be the person behind that it, that you're gonna get that's going to get got because they have less like option to try and claw their way back the further you get behind in this game the more it forces you to try and take riskier plays like if you see yourself at 20 points behind somebody you know the pack in this game like you feel like okay i should call brave in this situation because like i need to get back in this game like i need a big play or when i'm picking my hand of cards it's like you can easily see lines in this game like we talked about like i'll move here and here and then deliver this potion to get a bunch of points at this specific tower but inevitably that's going to fall apart and you may feel like you have to take the risky line because you're behind. So it just has this way of through no fault or like bad intentions of the other players, the person that gets behind early tends to just fall further and further behind to the point where it's very possible that somebody could just end up not having a good, good time. And when it's like a game night that I'm hosting, like I'm just so sensitive to that. And it's just something I've seen with this game that makes me just want to knock it a little bit. 
I think that that criticism is really valid and really fair. And I will also say I love the at two players in the context that I'm playing in. I love the moments where it goes so wrong that I'm like embarrassed how bad my game was because it it just feels kind of delightful to be like so seen, so exposed by by Maya, like knowing exactly what I want to be doing that she can like kick me to the ground and like take my broom and like step on my potions and be like smell you later freak and like she's like all the way you know 50 points ahead um and then because it makes the moments where like i block two of her actions and i get to play all my cards brave somehow feel so incredible um but i think that's because like at two it's zero sum yeah so it's like you feel like you got got where it's like a four-player game it feels a lot more like I'm incidentally just getting wrecked yeah, all yeah, these yeah, like sure. interactions. And like you'll even see people at the table like, oh sorry, Brendan, like I have to go <laughs> brave here. Like I you know? Yeah. It's like you don't want that. You don't want to be like the sympathetic person that people are just like kicking on accident and like apologizing. You know? Totally. Totally. That's so that, that, that's it. That's close with your favorite card. Like just art wise. What's your favorite? Oh man. Okay. I have to say one other thing before we do that and it's very short it's just that like the brave cowardly mechanism is hilarious it's hysterical every time i always force people in the game to like say the whole thing like i'm the brave fruit gatherer it's so childish but it's just you know it to me it just instantly teleports me back to like that childlike sense of play that like games should evoke you're like sitting around the table like staring each other down and you slam your cards like i'm the brave weather fairy or like i'm the cowardly forest witch it's just funny and it just lightens up this like cutthroat game and adds just a delightful texture to it so that might be like my favorite thing about the theming and like the mechanisms of the game and i think but i would say my favorite card is Herby the herb gatherer it just cracks me up um i don't know why that card just gets me every card in this game okay so one i love the brave cowardly me- mechanic too it sets the this stage just like you said so perfectly and calling yourself a coward is hilarious right every- it's like you don't want to be a coward yeah, like it, yeah. it just gets to your core yeah but sometimes you have to i and right. i love that it's kind of a joke like the game is kind of like it's not real it's not bad to be a coward in this game generally but like you don't right. want to be a coward right it's so because like in a different game by a different designer a different like art team like it could be like you could see this so easily like rethemed as like i'm the tactical sailor yeah, like, yeah. i'm the yeah. risky sailor right it's like both it could be like both good positive yeah. things but the fact that like they've made the decision to make like one of the one of the ways you could play the card like clearly not good value <laughs> judgments it, yeah right yeah. yeah it's so good okay the art every single card is a vibe and i love them all it's really hard for me i love that the peak druid has a little bunny the more i look at these cards the more i enjoy them um at the fruit gatherer cracks me up it's this little witch who has this like bright red beard and a blue hat and he's collecting like fruit that's like the size of him uh, and he can barely stand up it's amazing and the witches i think are all fantastic i love the mountain witch card that just 
she's dropping potions flying on her broom like and the the potions all have little parachutes on them as if she's not even stopping at the tower right she's just flying <laughs> dropping it down it's gonna float Drop down. <laughs> yeah i love this world i want to i want more games in the broom service world absolutely Awesome. Well, that's another episode of Decision Space on the boards. And with that, I'll remind everyone that coming up soon, next week is going to be a thematic what we talk about episode. Then we're going to cover Feast for Odin and then Tigris and Euphrates and Great Western Trail Await. So if you would like to play those games with other people online, maybe through Board Game Arena or even just discuss uh, Broom Service, this game, other games, concepts about games generally you should join our discord there's a link in the show notes discord is just an online chat room that anyone can join from a web browser and there's lots of people having interesting conversations about things that you're probably interested in on the decision space discord um you can catch up with jake and i and talk about decision space literally in a few places like that discord or twitter uh you can find us at decision spot or myself at burnside bh or jake at jake f-r-y-d on twitter uh look us up on board game geek as well just google decision space board game geek first result you won't miss it awesome this has been a lot of fun and look forward to next week thank you to hembry for their hit song reach out which is our intro and outro outro song see (laughs) y'all bye